0: everybody. Glad to have you here at Grace Community Church. My name's John Keeler, and I'm one of the pastors on staff. Hope everybody had a nice Thanksgiving. If you're like my family, you might have had three or four. So hopefully you have still have some leftovers. Um, and for those of you like Sharon, it's finally, finally the season where you don't seem so weird that you celebrate Christmas all year long so it's it's definitely you can see all the decorations i'm really thankful and i and I do love um, some good good worship um, Christmas songs as well and it was it's great to kick off the advent season right now but we're actually going to be talking about a different celebration, a different story um, for those of you who've been with us for the first three chapters of Esther. This is a little story that that kind of sets the stage for the um, festival of Purim, a Jewish festival, and we won't get into too many details there, but if you ever are interested in looking up what, um, what they do to celebrate uh, the holiday, it's, it's kind of like a combination between Mardi Gras, um, Easter, and um, Halloween, kind of all wrapped up in one, so I think my kids would love it. But um, most of you, if you're like me, you probably haven't spent too much time in Esther, um, I've always taken it for granted that, you know, Esther one of those books in the Old Testament. And, um, you know, the more you study it, the more you find that it was actually one of the most contested books in, in, the, uh, in the Bible when they were assembling the canon of Scripture for the, for the Christian Bible. And really the main reason, and, and I, I believe uh, Pastor R kind of kicked off and told us about that, God's name is never mentioned in the book. Um, there's no obvious miracles in the book there's nothing about jewish law or um, any uh religious observances in the book so some uh scholars thought that that really means that it's not um you know not a not a holy book not a uh inspired book but the other scholars and this is the the vast majority as as you can imagine since it's in our bible believe that it was a literary device that the author used for two reasons um and This absence of God, literary device that he used, was one. It kind of marks a period of time when um, the Jews were in a complacent place religiously. Um, They were living in the Persian Empire, kind of under the radar. So it kind of shows that God wasn't prevalent in their lives at the time. And then the other piece, too, is really one of my favorite parts of it the the audience the intended audience were jews and as they read the book and especially before and after Purim, they would they would read the story and in the absence of god they'd actually find places where they knew god was in the story so they would read god back into the story because as you read through the story it's it's so obvious every time you come across a interesting coincidence or Um, just a nuance in the story of how many times the story goes back and forth, back and forth, Um, you can't help but see that God's provident in all the places in the story. And so what we're gonna do is we read through the book of Esther, we're gonna stop at at parts of this story, and we're gonna read God back into the story where where he belongs. And it's actually something um, we all need to do in our own lives, right? Get into the habit of stopping reading God back into the story of our lives when we come across good times or bad times uh, the successes and the failures and even the mundane um, when we get to January and everybody's bored of of life again because the holidays are over God's there he's in your story he's in every piece of our story so before we actually get into um, our chapter I wanted to start off with a, a short story about a man, and um, it's going to center on the theme that, that we'll be talking about today, being called out of comfort. Um, this story, if, if any of you have seen the movie Chariots of Fire, then you're probably familiar with part of Eric Liddell's story. Um, Eric was, as a young man, he attended a school in London. He trained as an athlete, a runner, and various other a- athletic abilities. He was a devout Christian, and he always had this, this burden underneath that he wanted to go to China and be a missionary, um, where his, his parents actually had served for many years. Um, but as he was in school in London, he, stu- he, he trained for years. He actually was able to compete in the 1924 Olympics in Paris. And you know, the shocking part of the story of his life is that he dropped out of the 100-meter it was his strongest event, and he dropped out because he, he followed the Chick-fil-A hours of, of business. It, they, were, they had the final on Sunday, and so out of um, respect for um, his beliefs, he actually dropped out of the event. And many um, estimated that he would have been a gold winner in the 100. However, he still competed in the, the 400 and the 200. And he actually got a a gold medal in the 400 and set a a world record. So he he definitely did well. Um, His story really, as you can imagine, um, captured the hearts of many Americans and Christians. And so lots of fame, honor, respect, uh, prestige. But he still had that burning desire, a call to, to spread the gospel in China. And so about a year after the Olympics, he left his comfortable life behind, being called out of his, his comfort uh, in, in America. And he went and, and started to witness and, and um, share the gospel with the Chinese. But when the Japanese started occupying China, things got dangerous. So he sent his wife, and, um, who was pregnant at the time, and his two small children off to Canada so that they'd be safe. But he stayed there to continue the work. And unfortunately, um, at some point during the beginning stages of World War II, um, he was taken to a Japanese um, internment camp um, with many others um, where he, he, he actually passed away a few years after um, he was there. And many um, look back to some of the last written words, and he, his, his last written words were, It's complete. Surrender, And so he really is one of those inspiring stories, somebody, a man great for God's kingdom. And it's a story uh, much like we're going to talk about in Esther where um, some of us are called out of comfort um, to be put on the front lines. But the one question I want you to be thinking about, so as we go through this story, and this is a question I've always asked in my life, do you really believe that God only intends a few people? For that type of greatness, so hang on to that and let's pray. Dear God, thank you so much for this season and um, just everything we can be thankful for, um, for friends and family, um, just the time to celebrate who you are, to be thankful for what you've done. Um, as we enter into this um, Advent week of hope, we just we know that our hope is not um, not fickle. It's not the hope, as we, we've learned in the English language, this hope is, is, is a firm foundation. Our hope is, is a promise from you that will never never go away. And we know that uh, you're provident over every circumstance in our lives, and we know that we can trust you, Lord. Just ask that we would not be distracted during this season from what's really important, that we would continue to focus on you, Lord, as, as the giver of life and our source of hope. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Now, last week, Pastor R left us in a bit of a cliffhanger in Chapter 3. We, we got to meet the villain of the story. Every good story has a villain. We've got the man named Haman, who was an anti-Semitic man who was, happened to be second in charge to King Xerxes. So, not a good spot for him to be as the villain. A lot of influence. And as we know, when Mordecai, who's a Jew, decided to not bow to Haman and show him the respect that he, he felt he deserved, he hatched a plot and began uh, focusing on how he could exterminate all of the Jews, not just Mordecai. So he definitely took things very personal. Um, but as we see uh, at the end of chapter 3, unfortunately, he succeeded in his plot, convinced the king, Kind of fooled him into um, and almost bribed him into um, going along with the plan and in chapter 3 verse 13 we read letters were sent by couriers to all the king's provinces with instructions to destroy to kill and to annihilate all the jews young and old women and children in one day and the end of that chapter shows haman and xerxes having a few drinks celebrating and the, uh, the Amplified Bible says, the rest of the text says, the rest of the city of Susa was perplexed by the unusual and alarming decree. So you got two guys oblivious, having some wine. Everybody else is wondering, what in the world, how did that, what, what came about? So we get to chapter 4 in our story. If you want to turn with me to Esther chapter 4, it's right before Job. And we're going to continue, we're going to read through this, this chapter and we're going to look, at, look for the spots where God is is really prevalent. And we're going to see, um, this is one of the pivotal moments in the story. There's really, it's a central part of what's about to come in the rest of the story. It sets things up. And we're going to find three lessons out of this. But first we see, um, the first three verses are going to show us the ripple effect. So what is, it's expanding on chapter three, the end of chapter three How is everybody else reacting to this decree? So turn with me, chapter 4, first three verses. When Mordecai learned all that had been done, Mordecai tore his clothes and put on sackcloth and ashes and went out into the midst of the city, and he cried out with a loud and bitter cry. He went up to the entrance of the king's gate, for no one was allowed to enter the king's gate clothed in sackcloth. And in every province, wherever the king's command and his decree reached, there was great mourning among the Jews with fasting and weeping and lamenting, and many of them lay in sackcloth and ashes. Understandably, uh, the Jews across the province or across the kingdom were distressed. They were given a a death sentence that was going to take place in about 11 months from that date. So they, you know, being that this was kingdom-wide, and, and, and the Persian Empire pretty much encompassed the known world at the time. There was nowhere to run, nowhere to hide. Um, and many of you, as, as you followed along with us in the story of Daniel, you knew that the law of the Medes and the Persians cannot be changed. It's irrevocable. So these Jews knew that once enacted, there's no turning back. There's no appeal, no begging for a, a change. Their, their, their fate was sealed. One particular Jew, our our good friend Mordecai, felt the sting of this edict even more severely, right? Think about back what we learned in chapter 3. His refusal to bow to Haman obviously incited his anger and and caused this decree in some indirect way, right? I mean, Haman was uh, an enemy of the Jews before this, but he used this as an opportunity. So if you were Mordecai, and you, you knew that what, what happened and how this played out. You know, there's, a, there's an, an additional feeling of regret maybe, remorse. Maybe he's feeling like, did I really, you know, do the right thing? Did I stand up for my convictions and was this a good move? What if I just bowed? Maybe that would have, would have avoided this at least for now. And so he went to the very public place, the entrance of the king's gate, where he wasn't allowed to go past but he went to a very public place and set set kind of an example for his fellow Jews to mourn to grieve together as a community which was very common and this is this is the first lesson we're going to see it's having this proper pro- posture towards inequity or tragedy just really being able to take the time and and reflecting on it properly and as you look and we we read about the response of the Jews and Mordecai it was it was extreme grief, but if you read through your examples of of the Bible, and you know you just do a little cursory look at anywhere um, people are in sackcloth and ashes, right? There's a lot of prayer, submission to God. Most times, repentance is is a lot coming along with that. Um, so when we read into um, specifically what was happening, even though God wasn't mentioned, obviously, if you think about um, marginal Christian friends of yours. Do they pray when tragedy hits? Yeah, even they pray. Do unbelievers pray to some god normally when something really bad happens? You know, so we know that there was most likely prayer. um, And I also believe there was submission to God, knowing that he was the only one, right, that could possibly help them out of this circumstance. And most scholars also think that there might have even been an element of repentance here. And as we said in the beginning, um, you know, the Jews in Persia were kind of living under the radar. They were just blending in with their society. They were not distinct as God had called them to be. And so there might have been some repentance here as they, as they realized that approach wasn't going to last any longer. This was um, a, a dire situation. And um, I love the story of, of Jonah. You know, it, it's, it's interesting. It's one of my favorite examples as, as I went through and looked at all the examples of sackcloth and ashes and repentance. If, if you uh, have a device, you can go to Jonah 3, 5 through 10. And this is the response of the Ninevites when Jonah gave the message that God would destroy their city. And the people of Nineveh believed God, and they called for a fast and put on sackcloth, from the greatest of them to the least of them. The word reached the king of Nineveh, and he arose from his throne. He removed his robes, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat in ashes. And he issued a proclamation and published through Nineveh. By the decree of the king and his nobles, let neither man nor beast nor herd nor flock taste anything. Let them not feed or drink water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth. So your dogs would have to put on some sackcloth and ashes, your cows. So man and beast... Put on sackcloth and ashes and let them call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn from his evil way and from violence that is in his hands. And who knows? Who knows? God may turn and relent from his fierce anger so that we might not perish. And for those of you that know the story, God did relent from from his his anger. And he did save the Ninevites, much to Jonah's uh, disappointment. But... That's a different story for another day, but when you face this kind of challenge, when you face this type of tragedy, and I think we've come, you know, throughout the past couple years to a couple of difficult spots, do you run and hide? Do you get angry and fight, um, or do you get on your knees? Do you do you repent, or do you do you submit to God? Do you grieve as a community? This was—you could see there was a very very public. Uh, display of emotion back in those days it's not very common for us we 're individuals we hide in our, in our in our homes and we put on facades and we don't we don 't grieve as as a community and here we're seeing them take a lot of time um, just really reflecting on the situation being um, you know able to wallow in it you know really i I guess it's spending the right amount of time in discomfort and pain, and not moving on too quickly, not trying to get back to your comfort zone. And as a, as a believer, our best response is to submit to God, knowing that he's with us in the stories and the tragedies, and, you know, look to him for, for direction in those times. So, let's see what happens next as we, as we hit verses 4 and 5. We're going to get to see how Queen Esther, our, one of our main characters, responds to all this tragedy. When Esther's young women and her eunuchs came and told her, the queen was deeply distressed. She sent garments to clothe Mordecai so that he might take off his sackcloth, but he would not accept them. Then Esther called for Hatak, one of the king's eunuchs, who had been appointed to attend her, and 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 ordered him to go to Mordecai and to learn what this was and why it was. So let's think about this story here. We know that from the beginning, Mordecai was like a father to Esther. So she was distressed by his, his mourning. She wanted to know more about what was happening. So she sent out some clothes. She thought, well, maybe if I get, you know, get him a new set of clothes, he can get cleaned up, come on through the king's gate. We'll sit down. We'll have some food. Maybe he can tell me what's on his mind, what's going on, why he's so distressed. But he declines. He declines. So it's a really important part of the story. He was, he was not done with, with what he was trying to accomplish. He wanted to um, continue to grieve and, and, and really demonstrate, um, you know, his, his heart's conviction over the situation. He wasn't ready to move on. And then we find that she sends Haytack to find out what, what's going on, what, what, what's happening that he's this distressed and that's that's one of the places you you hit pause in the story and you and you think what's wrong with this part of the story think about it she's sending him to find out what was wrong so apparently she's completely unaware of what's going on um she's completely unaware of the decree even though we read in in chapter in verse 3 that the, the decree went out across the whole kingdom. All the Jews were mourning. She still doesn't know what's going on. She's living in luxury. She's oblivious to what's going on, and um, she's too comfortable in, in her life lifestyle to, to know what's happening in the rest of the kingdom. And this is where I think sometimes we find ourselves, especially as Americans, in the story where we're kind of in, in a bit of an oblivious um, mode, right? We're We're unaware of what's going on we're lulled into complacency and we're not thinking about you know kind of all the tragedy out there all the difficult circumstances I think sometimes it's only around the Christmas season we even think about people that are less fortunate so it's in that part of the story where we're unwilling to kind of um, you know look beyond our comfort zone and hang on to that because we're going to come back to that piece of the story in a little bit but let's keep reading So Hatak went out to Mordecai in the open square of the the city in front of the king's gate. And Mordecai told him all that had happened to him and the exact sum of money that Haman had promised to pay the king to the king's treasury for the destruction of the Jews. Mordecai also gave him a copy of the written decree issued in Susa for their destruction, that he might show it to Esther and explain it to her and command her to go to the king to beg his favor and plead with him on behalf of her people. And Hatak went and told Esther what Mordecai had said. So just real quick, in this part of the story, we see the the contrast. So she has no idea what's going on. She's the queen in 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 the palace. She has no idea what's going on with her people. But Mordecai knows everything. He knows the exact amount. He knows what's going on. He has an actual... Copy of the decree to send to her to show how dire the situation is, and she's calling her out. He's calling her out. He's saying you got to do something. You're the queen. I mean, you know, I'm I'm sure he was completely um, astonished that she had no idea what was going on, and so he's calling her out. It says that he told uh, Haytak to command her to go to the king, to beg for their lives, to reveal her identity. At this point, she was still an undercover Jew in the palace, she was to reveal her identity, tell the king, and beg for their lives. Well, what would your response be? It's like one of those moments where you're kind of called to the mat. You you don't know what to do. Well, verses 10 and 11 show us how Esther responded. Then Esther spoke to Hatak, and commanded him to go to Mordecai and say... First off, I want you to know this poor Haytack guy was getting really tired. I mean, you know, but at least his name made it in the Bible, so that's, that's pretty cool. But she sends him back to Mordecai and says, Tell him, all the king's servants and the people of the king's provinces know that if any man or woman goes to the king inside the inner court without being called... There is but one law to be put to death, except the one to whom the king holds out the golden scepter so that he may live. But as for me, I have not been called to come into the king these 30 days. It's a very polite way of saying the king's not really interested in me lately. Um, so surprisingly, her response was she refused, but she also insulted him. I get this, this insult occasionally from one of my, my kids, like, no, duh, everybody knows this. Or what, You know, So she's basically saying, what are you, crazy? Everybody knows you can't just walk into the king's palace or into his court. You'd be killed that way. So she's saying, no, thank you. I'm not interested. I'm not doing it. And that was... That was her response. And before we get too quick to judge, obviously, let's let's think about it. Put yourself, you know, put ourselves into the character of the story here. Let's let's look at things from her perspective. You know, it was true that there was a, a rule for the king's king's protection. Nobody could just walk in unannounced. I'm sure you can't just walk into the White House and meet with the president. And you know, so for his protection, there was that rule, and it was punishable by death. But beyond that. She also knew that the king we're talking about here was the volatile, um, unpredictable Xerxes. You know, we know very quickly in his story, and through historical accounts of his story, you know, he he was he banished his first wife because of a drunken mistake. He had unquenchable um, appetites, big parties that lasted for six months, um, a harem of hundreds of women. He obviously had not shown interest in Esther for over 30 days, so she didn't know where she stood with him. But beyond that, here's the big one here that I I, I think about. This is about four or five years into her being queen in the story. So, you know, the Bible does that to us sometimes. It just kind of fast-forwards at certain points, and we don't realize how much time lapses. But four or five years in, she's kept her identity hidden all this time from him, from everybody. How would he react to being deceived that she was one of these Jews that, that Haman's talking about and she never said anything? Um, she knew that, that he was unpredictable and so she's thinking, am I gonna risk it all on a long shot anyway? She knew that the law of the Medes and the Persians could not be changed. So you know she's probably thinking, what, what can I do? I mean, why am I gonna stick my neck out on the line? So at this point in the story, She didn't want to get involved, she didn't see it as as her problem, and she didn't think the risk was worth it. It was too too much. And I wonder sometimes, I feel like we're in that situation where we're in a situation we could help out, but is the risk too much? Are you willing to risk for your fellow believers? Are you willing to risk for someone you you don't know very well? Um, Maybe for your family. But, you know, if you're in a comfortable lifestyle, comfort normally avoids any hardship. Comfort normally avoids any inconvenience. And you got to watch it. When we get into our comfortable little lives and our bubbles, we we start to withdraw from anything, you know, anything uncomfortable, right? Anything that puts us out. And I'm speaking to myself there. I get my routines, have everything you know, lined up, and, and I don't like anything to get in the way. Um, and sometimes we, we rule out God's Holy Spirit guiding us to do things that we know we should do. Well, let's see how our friend Mordecai responds to her insulting response. Verses 12 through 14, And they told Mordecai what Esther had said. It's funny, they switch, it switches to they, and I don't know if Haytak was like, I'm done with this, I'm, you're not sending me back again. But it's, maybe it's some other messengers. But this is a back and forth ping pong discussion here. And they told Mordecai what Esther had said. Then Mordecai told them to reply to Esther, Do not think to yourself that in the king's palace you will escape any more than all the other Jews. Think about it. You're no, but you're no better than anyone else. You're, you're still a Jew, Esther. For if you keep silent at this time, relief and deliverance will rise for the Jews from another place. But you and your father's house will perish. And who knows whether you have not come to the kingdom for such a time as this. I thanked R that he he left me right at the, like, pivotal. Everybody always knows that verse for such a time as this. It's one of those inspirational moments. And we get to see lesson number two here. Sometimes we need to confront each other and call each other out of comfort and help each other know when you must do what's right. And Mordecai is doing that for Esther. He's confronting her. He's he's reminding her who she is, that she's really just a part of the puzzle. She's no better than anyone else. And in his response, we can see a couple um, reasonings uh, that he he puts into his call out of comfort. He first is talking to her that she's foolish. He's telling her she's foolish if she thinks she can avoid this this decree and the and the uh, the fate of all the Jews. She's she's. Not going to be any more protected. And as an orphan, you know, he's really kind of highlighting, and in this culture, you know, kind of carrying on your, your family's lineage was so important. So he's like telling her, you're going to be the end of your, fa- your father's household. You're going to, you're going to end his father, your father's name in destruction. So don't think you're safe. Second, this is where we get to really read God into the story. I mean, think about it. Haman is a Jew, and just like all the other Jews, he, he knows the promises of God. He knows the promises to David and to Abraham and, and the heritage that he has that, that God would not let his people pass. And so he knew that the Jews would survive this somehow. So he, he's really showing her that God will use someone else. Some other circumstances, if, you, if you're not up for the challenge, he doesn't need you, right? He's going to do it. And third, this is really that, that call, that inspirational moment where he's really reminding her, can't you see the providence in everything that's happened in your life, Esther? Snap out of it. Can't you see that this is your calling, that you're here for a reason, and now it has come with a price? There's something for you to do. And that's where we, we want to see ourselves sometimes in the story. We want to think what is your calling? What's each and every one of us called to do? Right? Why did God have all those things that happened to you take place in your lives? Like, think about when I was listening to the story of Matt and Beth Wish. I like what Matt said when he explained. He said, you know, we finally realized when we, were, when we were talking about leaving for the Congo how God redeemed each part of our story for this, for this moment, for this event. And, and I see that in my life. I mean, it, it can be dramatic for some of us. I see how God used every little thing to, to call me into what he wanted for me. And I think if you were like me out there, hearing someone like me up here you probably are dismissing very quickly the big call right that there's someone else that'll do the the mission stuff there's somebody else who will get into full-time ministry but i think we i think in a room this size you look around and you think where does god raise up people for those those callings where does he draw from to raise up leaders for his kingdom Probably in his church. So I think too many times we we um, we're we're not thinking that's us. We're we're too busy. We're we're too ready to to kind of gloss over that. But I can tell you, some of you are called to missions work. Some of you are called to ministry, full time life. Some to change your job. I think some of you, and I know I was in that that situation. Some of you are in a position where you are called by God to change your job so that you can be the spouse that you know you're supposed to be. I mean, I talk to men all the time. There are, you know, there are seasons in life for sure, but if you are in a job that, that zaps you from spiritual maturity, from being, um, you know, a spiritual leader of your family, for being around for your, your family, then I'm, I'm pretty sure that's not what God intended you to do. There's more to this life than working here. Others, um, you know, you're called to step up and do the difficult thing. Break that bad habit that's really destroying your family, right? Think about that. Get healthy, if if, if if, if that's your call. To get healthy so that you can be available and used by God to help others if you are always needing help, how can you help others around you? And God's calling you to that. But think about it. My question again, do you really think only a few people are called for greatness for his kingdom? Just a few? Or are the rest of us just not listening to that calling? Now, as we think about the rest of this story, we're going to boil it down, we're going to see that there's, there's some risk right? that comes with a calling sometimes it's risk of standing out for our faith, the risk of loss risk of the unknown it's always worth it though I can guarantee you it's always worth it and we know that um, God's training us here, he won't fail us and the coolest thing is he loves when we exercise this kind of faith when we step out when we don't see all the the pieces in front of us and we step out in faith. So this is how we're going to end the story today. We're going to see the the, uh, good news ending of the story. Verses 15 through 17. Then Esther told them to reply to Mordecai, Go, gather all the Jews to be found in Susa and hold a fast on my behalf and do not eat or drink for three days. Day and night, I and my young women will also fast as you do. Then I will go to the king, though it is against the law. And if I perish, I perish. Mordecai then went away and did everything as Esther had ordered him. So he snapped her out of that comfortable life. I'm thinking like, I like to think in the story, this is probably like a flashback moment for her when he was like calling her out. She's probably thinking about the pain that she felt when she lost her parents at a young age. She was an orphan. Um, The fear that she felt when she was entered into the beauty contest, you know, what would would happen? Would would she be chosen? It was a pretty dramatic event. Um, Also, the fear of of kind of being a hidden Jew in the kingdom, having to hide her identity um, with with such a volatile person like Xerxes. Um, So... He's challenging her, though, to see the why behind all that, to, to, to point her to the fact that there was a reason for it, and she's accepted that. She's embraced that. and Thankfully, you know, she, she does follow the call. And we get to see these moments. I, I get to look at these moments, too, and you get to look at these moments, and you get to say, well, okay, I, I, I'm seeing why God did this or how, um, you know, the death of our child in, influenced God um, this part of my story. And, and it's a wonderful thing when we can um, see that God has been in all of our stories. And this is where I, I like to read God back in the story again, as we mentioned before. What's missing in the words of the story is prayer, right, along with the fasting. And, you know, we want to we realize, realize that she's calling all the Jews in Susa everyone, everyone, pray or, you know, think about it fast. Take this seriously. And so the third lesson we, we we look at here and the final lesson is we just need to make sure that we're taking our calling seriously, that we're submitting to God in these times, we're dependent on Him, um, and we need the resolve to step up to this type of challenge. And what's interesting in the text, the typical... Um, fast that's called for in in the Jewish um, religion is is normally daytime fast. It's sunrise to sunset. But what she's really saying here is no food, no drink, nothing day and night. We got to get serious. All hope is lost, but there's one thing we can do. We can take this to God. We can be serious about it with prayer and fasting. And as we reflect on that story, so here's the opportunity for you to think, I want you to think through, I have three indicators for you to contemplate, maybe just pray over, write it down. Three indicators that maybe you have been called out of your comfort and haven't been listening. These are, these are good signs that, that I, I used and tested throughout my, my story and my life too, and, and it resonated with me. Have you been stuck in an unwanted season for too long? Kind of feel like you're stuck in a rut, um, a a spiritual slump. Um, You feel like you've lost the joy of your salvation. So you're in that kind of uh, prolonged season. It may be an indicator that God's calling you out for something else, that he wants you to do something. Because God, in his love, will not let his children find rest without following him, right? He won't give our, our souls rest until we're following him. And for me personally, you, you can't fall into the trap of being fooled by what the world measures as being where you should be, right? Think about it. The world's talking about comfort, prosperity, everything's going fine, everything's doing just fine, but that's, that's a distraction, so don't use that as an indicator, and God will show you what's missing. Some people, they have an unreasonable fear or anxiety over doing something that they actually know they should do. So they put it off, they overthink things, they make excuses. And as much as God is a God of order and planning, he's also a God who wants us to take risks. And some people will take risk in business, some people will take risk on other people. But Very few of us will take a risk on God, but it's worth it. It's worth it. The other thing that some people are doing, they're just holding something back. That one thing you're holding back. The one room, the one closet in your life that you're holding back. I think of the rich young ruler in Mark 10 who was unwilling to part with his wealth and follow Jesus. But believe me, believe me, there's nothing better than giving it all up for the Lord. What he's got for you is so much more than whatever you're holding on. And he'll show you that one thing that you're holding back. Maybe it's a relationship. Maybe it's wealth, safety, prestige, pleasure. Maybe you're in all three of these situations. And that really is, hopefully today, a wake-up call that there's a calling for you. There's something greater. Now, I want to read one last story, and we're going to close. It's another famous missionary story about a man named Charles T. Studd. Charles was a famous cricket player, and he eventually became a missionary to China and India. He was the youngest of the Studd brothers, famous cricket players, and um, they all attended Eton and Cambridge. And, in fact, they played in the uh, first test match between England and Australia. And after um, a little while at Eton, he and his brothers were saved and, and um, became Christians. And it didn't take long, and Charles T. Studd gave up sports fame and decided to be a missionary. And, and I love, I would love to have, have, have met him. His, his words were, he said, I know that cricket would not last and that honor would not last and that nothing in this world would last, But it is worthwhile living for the world to come. So he kept his focus. He gave up all of his comforts, and in his 20s, he moved um, to China and worked with China Inland Missions. He married Priscilla Livingstone Stewart, another missionary, and they lived in China for 10 years, then went on to Africa and then India um, before he became terminally ill. Um, And according to... um, his biography, one of the last letters he wrote. This is an amazing letter. Stud wrote As I believe I am now nearing my departure from this world, I have but a few things to rejoice in, and they are these that God called me to China and I went in spite of utmost opposition from all my loved ones. Number two, that I joyfully acted as Christ told that rich young ruler. And three, that I deliberately, at the call of God, gave up my life for this work. My only joys, therefore, are that when God has given me a work to do, I have not refused it. And I don't think there's many of us right now in this room that would be able to say that if the Lord called us home. You see, he was called out of comfort for something greater and I, I believe when he went home to the Lord, he, he received a well-done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful with a little. I will set you over much. Come and enter into the joy of your master. And, and isn't that joy of our master so much better than anything, any comfort here on earth? And, and again, the last time I'll ask this question, think, do you really think that God only called a few people like this for greatness for his kingdom? Or are the rest of us just tuning them out? Let's pray. Dear God, we we humbly submit before you, our maker, our creator, the provident hand behind every little thing that goes on in our lives, every big thing that goes on in our lives. And in a story like Esther We just thank you for pointing out how you are behind the scenes even though sometimes we don't see you, sometimes we don't hear you. We know you're in every part of our story. You're weaving everything together. You're in every single part of our story. And we know that you're calling each and every believer to greatness for your kingdom. We are all torchbearers for you. We're all lights in this world. We all have the Holy Spirit inside of us calling to us, calling to our spirit, telling us to step up, get out of our comfort, follow that call that you have, Lord, the unique call you have for each one of us that you've prepared for us, that you've woven into our story. Just... Let that sink in to each of us and that we would humbly submit before you, that we would appropriately ask you to show us what are we holding back? What are we not giving you? May you continue to lead us. Please don't let us find rest until we find you, Lord.